Oh yeah, We've talked oh. about her on the show before. Yeah, she's like German. a YouTube physicist. Yeah, yeah I yeah. like her beloved friend and friend of the show recommended her to me. She has a really good video on how practical is solar energy and what are the technological roadblocks. That's what made me think of it because that's where I learned about all the different kinds of batteries we've invented. You know, YouTube, that 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 YouTube. You the internet is full of information it turns out. Yeah, it's true. Who to fuck it? It's not just memes and porn anymore. And apparently for me, attractive young couples talking about their van life keeps on popping up in my suggestions. Oh, Do you not wow. get that? No. That's not a universal Me and thing. my girlfriend saw you from across the national park and we really liked your vibe. Want to come check out our camping van? That's what I'm imagining the ads you're getting are. Uh, it's more like, check out our sweet camping van where we're sexy in a camping van. Oh, it's like camp influencers? It's like we live in a van 24-7. And we blog about it. And we blog about it. And we're kind of Yeah, like I know. Man. I know yeah. exactly what you mean. I don't know why I get that, but I do. But I do. How are you, Ava? Baruch Hashem. Um, I'm okay. I'm I'm in that weird, like, immediate post-Shabbat. I didn't do anything all day, and that's exactly as intended. But because of that, it feels like my day did not happen. So in kind of a weird mood right now, but generally doing good, thinking a lot about how fucked up the system of Jewish funding for things is. I was just having a conversation with someone recently about how Jewish funding writ large, the system isn't really designed to support the creation of Torah. It's designed to support like the creation of engagement. Oh, boy. And <laughs> that felt very true and very awful and sort of doom inducing, especially as someone who is like sort of actively seeking funding for Shalmala. If you're a, if you're a funder and you're listening to this, reach out. I don't know. Bummer that we chose to set up our culture's nonprofit institutions that way. The idea that pops into my head for creating Torah is to get a bunch of acid-free paper and write all the things down and then like put them in clay jars and put them in a dry cave like that's right. what our nonprofit does somebody get this man some funding oh i would love that i would love i don't know what we'd put in the jars but <laughs> yeah i just as i've been working on my various projects that some of them have as their endeavor like creating new jewish text creating new jewish ideas doing new and interesting things in judaism if those new and interesting things don't mean like a demonstrable quantifiable increase in engagement then it is sort of like invisible to funders they're like t-rexes you know like if you don't move they can't see you like if you're not creating engagement you can't really be seen by the system it's haunting yeah. there's a specter haunting jewish america and it's the specter of capital yeah yeah sounds about right yeah, so that's that. Are the pretzels bothering you? No, okay. the pretzels are not bothering me. Okay. But other than that, just working away. Work, work, work. Video games to unwind. Work, work, work. Video games to unwind. You know, the sacred cycle. Cycle of, of death and rebirth that we all go through every day. That sounds okay. It sounds nice. <laughs> I feel okay about it. I'm, I'm, I feel good in, in both sides of the cycle. Overall, there are obviously troubles. When you were saying work, work, work and the whole life thing and you smiled, it made me really appreciate just how mentally healthy you are in comparison to me. 
uh, words rarely said <laughs> to this individual. By anyone or by me? <laughs> by anyone. You're just like really mentally healthy. It's really cool. That's like, not, I can't, okay, okay, I don't let, know let how rephrase. to receive that. Rephrase. It's not neither a, live on air nor in real life. You seem like you love yourself. Yes, I do think I have some real progress on loving myself here in the past decade or so. That's really good. Yeah. Ugh, I'm watching this anime right now. One of the main plots of which is basically the main character is an elf and like, most elves in most fantasy universes she lives a long fucking time and the sort of central premise of the anime is it's following her adventure is living longer than everyone else around her and sort of trying to like figure out what that means for the meaning of her life as a result of that she's all the time people are like it's been forever since i saw you it's been 50 years and she's like 50 years is not not anything and i was just thinking about how i just said I've made some progress on loving myself in the last decade and that I am not an elf and a decade is a long time for me. Yeah, decades a long time, but you did it. Good job. Thank you. Mortality haunts us all. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it does. Anyway, what'd you bring me? I brought you some stuff. I brought you some stuff. I'm always waiting for the day when I say that and you're like, I thought you were bringing something and then we just have to quit. (laughs) Yeah, I mean, that could happen. That's when the show ends, I think. (laughs) That's... The sign. Luckily, that day is not today. Well, as you can recall, two episodes ago. Yes, returning to our theme. I brought some stuff on Amha Aretz. Yes. And referenced Sam's year-end review. Right, Samha Aretz. And at the end of it, I said what I wanted to know more about was what the life of the Amha Aretz was actually like. Right. In that second temple time period, when all the shit went down with the temple being destroyed, like what was an average Jew's life like? Right. What was going on with Jew Plummer? Yeah, what was going on with Jew Plummer? (laughs) (laughs) And uh, the reason why is to get closer to something of like a, a type of Jewish practice that hasn't been influenced by... I mean, this is impossible, right? Because everything is influenced by all sorts of crazy shit that I don't even know. I don't know. Somehow just, just I don't know. I feel like it could be a form mm-hmm. of inspiration for shit we do now, right? Yeah. Like yeah. A, a pre-Talmud, semi-pre-Mishnah layer type of Judaism. Like, what do we yeah. have that's out You just there? want to get close to your ancestors. It's okay to say that. Well, is is that I'm I'm not shy about that. <laughs> Maybe I am. I don't know. <laughs> I mean, okay, not to get too meta before we even talk about what we're going to talk about. I was just wondering if what was going on is you were like need to come up with a like a sort of elaborate reason when it could just be like I just want to know what it was like. I just want to empathize with their experiences. Yes, yes. My mythological ancestors. Who knows if they actually are my ancestors, right? Like, genetically. Right. Sure. I mean, what is an ancestor? The genetic model of ancestry is is like a very recent way of understanding what an ancestor that's is. True, so. That's true. So, I found this interesting paper, which I'm going to talk about. And the paper is called Jewish Life Before the Revolt. Ooh. The Bar Kokhba revolt? Uh, no, the one before that. The first Jewish revolt against the Romans that preceded the destruction of the Second Temple. Oh, okay. Does that one have a special name? Or is it just, just the revolt? I guess if it had a special name, it would be in the title of this paper. I, I don't know. I think it's called the First Something Revolt. but You know, the revolt. 
Basically, the paper is Jewish life before the destruction of the Second Temple. Okay. The Archaeological Evidence. Ooh. Uh-huh. This is a paper from 2005 by Professor Andrea M. Berlin, who I believe is oh. a professor of archaeology at UMass Boston. Great. Just down the road. Just down the road, up the road. All roads lead to UMass Boston. Uh-huh. <laughs> you can get there. This paper is really great. I would recommend people who are interested go out and read it. It covers all sorts of interesting things like funeral stuff, dining room stuff, all sorts of stuff. But I'm just going to focus in on stuff related to pottery. Great. Love it. Gay autists and artists who listen to this show are going to love it. The working methodology here or whatever is like, there's not a lot out there to figure out what Jews were doing besides Mm -hmm. writings that we're aware of and, you know, also like New Testament stuff, things like Josephus. So there's some writings here and there that you can figure out maybe what Jews were up to. But other than that, you basically have to rely on archaeology and kind of interpret what people find. So a lot of this paper is talking about basically statistics about distribution of different types of pottery at different types of locations. Great. And like what you can figure out about what Jews were up to at different times based on the pottery stats, essentially. We only bring you the most riveting material here on Hi, How Are You? We comb through the pottery shards of the news to find the most fascinating, you know, statistical analysis of pot shards. So, okay, the first little intriguing little fact I want to bring to you Mm -hmm. that is brought up in this paper is that in the middle of the first century B.C.E., So, 100 or so years before destruction of the Second Temple. Right. Lest we forget, lest I always forget that BCE centuries count down to zero and CE centuries count up from zero. There were so many times on reading this paper, I was just like, middle of first century BCE, is that that 70 Or long, 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 long time ago, or just like a long time ago. This is very, I just want the numbers. Just give me a minus sign and a number. Uh, Yeah. But I don't sometime know. before the birth of Oily Josh. Uh, <laughs> yeah. So there was this period like, you know, 100 years before Oily Josh, where all of a sudden in the archaeological layers at that time, there are these pottery making fact uh, like uh, like studios, not studios, not factories, like pottery <laughs> making air, pottery making buildings. Accoutrement. There were these pretty big, you know, like places pumping out pottery that suddenly right. appeared out of nowhere. They all appeared at the same mm-hmm. time all over Palestine. They were all in historically Jewish regions that people have previously determined through various types of scholarship were Jewish Got regions. It. There was a boom in boutique there Jew was a pottery. Boom. The pottery that they were making was super generic. We're talking casserole pans, storage jars. And they all kind of look the same, and there's nothing really special necessarily about them. Mm-hmm. So it's like really basic home goods stuff. Everyone needs it. Right. You got it. Target. I'm a target, exactly. So what's weird about these things is not that the fact that they existed and what they were making, but the fact that they just all kind of appeared at the same time, and there was right. no historical reason <clears throat> for them to do that. It's not like there was a big population shift at the time. Mm -hmm. No big population growths. 
No big edict that said no Jews make edict. pottery now. There was some political stuff going on with Rome and stuff like that, transitioning to Herod, being more in power. But right. if you look into the specifics of what some of those Roman declarations were, they wouldn't have had an impact on these particular areas, demand for pottery or Jews needing to go in certain places. So there's no weird political reasons why these pottery places, why these targets. Being the perverse being that I am, I'm on the edge of my seat to find out why there was some boom in Jewish pottery production in the first century BCE. Well, so what's please. your guess? What's your guess? Tell um, me. I don't know. <laughs> I can't wait to find out. Wait, wait. I do want to guess, though. Mm, they uncovered a new kind of clay i don't know <laughs> that was another potential theory like maybe there's a new product right oh we there's this new imported product that comes rookie in rookie guess <sighs> no not a rookie guess a great guess you great guess when i was reading this i was holding breath. i was like what is going on what? why <laughs> why was there a pottery boom why was there a pottery boom? Why were there all these pottery barns? This professor's theory is that there was no material or political reason for this to happen. That this was a spiritual reason. That Jews were interested in purity laws. And they needed a supply of dishware and shit that would be Damn. not necessarily... The neighborhood started getting religious. The neighborhood started getting religious, and it happened around a hundred years before Greece. What do you call it? Greasy Josh, oily Josh, oily Josh. <laughs> let's 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 be polite here. Yeah. <laughs> so this is like early, early rabbis hanging around during this time. Uh, one hundred BCE. Yeah, I think so. This I think is... so. I think the Zakanim are around during this time. Let's see. This would be like the teachers of Hillel and Shammai. Let's see. When were they hanging out? Hillel theoretically died 10 CE. Yeah, so this is this is a couple yeah, of Yeah, so theoretically before. Hillel's master would have been around in this time period. So the amount of these studios and the volume kind of suggests or really demonstrates that this is an interest of the of the Amhaarets, right? Mm-hmm. I think if you look at historical documents from the time when you have the hellenistic roman time period when like they're in control of palestine some jews are into it they're fine with it they're cool with it right and it's as you move up you know closer and closer to the time of that revolt and the and the ultimate destruction of the second temple that's when you start getting tension between those groups more and more and so mm -hmm. it's kind of interesting that like a century prior to the destruction of the Second Temple, suddenly there's Jewish target ceramicists popping up to provide some sort of service that there was plenty of before, like imports and stuff like that. There was no right. reason. So there's some interesting... Right. There. I mean, it's it means that there wasn't as much of it happening before, which means like, I don't know, I guess there is this idea that we sometimes have that sort of like before the destruction of the second temple, all the Jews were like basically on board with temple life and everything was pretty much like on track Jewishly yeah. before it got fucked up by the destruction of the second temple, which certainly it did get fucked up by the destruction of the second temple. But the pre-second temple ride, even in the immediate period before the destruction of the second temple is a, is a bumpy road, spiritually speaking. Lots of, of developments and changes in what Jewish spiritual life was were already happening before the Second Temple sort of catalyzed all that. Oh, yeah, yeah. And like for for hundreds of years at least. 
you know, prior and probably longer in ways I don't even know about. There's even more evidence of this kind of like religious interest. The Mm -hmm. professor, I think, refers to it as like, forget, like like a like a home Judaism or something like that. Um, Yeah. She brands it that way. So there are examples of wine press and oil press areas that have jar fragments that, you know, used to contain oil and wine. And Mm -hmm. some of them have like a mikvah in the same building room. But the jar fragments that you find are like generic. They're the same as jar fragments in other wine press areas around the whole region that don't necessarily have mikvahs. It's interesting that there's a mikvah in the same building as like a wine press or like an Mm -hmm. olive oil press. So that implies that there's some sort of, you know, purification process, some sort of spiritual thing happening with the mikvah and these home goods. But mm-hmm. the fact that the goods are stored in jars that aren't necessarily all that special and aren't different from other jars means that they're just used as like regular products in some daily rituals, like the daily ritual of eating and drinking and stuff like that. So they're not like for some sort of special holy days right? for regular use. And so this starts huh. popping up at the same time period, you know, a hundred years before the oily, all the way up to the destruction of the second temple. At the same time, you start seeing more stone vessels appearing, like stone okay. actually created from like local stone mm-hmm. like that's been quarried. Right. And so before 100 years, I'm going to just say negative 100 years. It's easier. Before uh-huh. negative 100 years, like negative 200 years, there's locally created pottery and lots of imported pottery. Okay. That's, I think, made by Phoenicians. It's like red imported pottery that's coming in. But mm-hmm. then, especially at the first century AD, among Amha'arets, among like normal non-rich households, Mm-hmm imported pottery like disappears and what replaces it is this stone like locally sourced stone pottery which it's no more or less inexpensive than like this imported pottery Mm -hmm. it's not really useful for cooking or for grinding in because it's like a soft stone it's really like for serving and display Mm -hmm. this appears in all the jewish areas it doesn't appear in samaria where there's a bunch of samaritans Mm. and so There's this theory that this is an outward symbol of Jewish pride somehow to like not use the imports. In contrast, the rich Jews who are like living in some of the richer parts of Jerusalem, the politically connected and affluent Jews. Right. The real Jewy Jews. The real Jewy Jews, as we like to say. They had tons of imports. They were totally cool with it. Rootless cosmopolitans that they were. Yeah. They also had the stone dishes, but they were also... Yeah, they were very rootless. Yeah, yeah. There's like this whole culture of home religious practice that's bubbling up around this time. So, I mean, it sounds like the Amharitses weren't too, they weren't slacking off. No, they weren't slacking off. Like they had some sort of ritual practices and a sense of political or a sense of like, what were you going to say? You're, 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 well, I was just going to say, as we talked about in our Amharits episode, the earlier strata of texts talking about Amharitses are pretty neutral compared to the later strata, the Amoraic texts in the Babylonian exile. So that's like a whole different culture. The Amharits could have been onto a completely different spiritual trend by the time the Amoraim 
were talking shit about them. Not to justify their shit talk, just to say, like, it makes sense maybe why the Tanaim were more relaxed about it all, because maybe they were more proximate to this revival of popular Jewish religion. That could be. And it's like, what would the Tanaim, what did they think about the high class Jews who were not doing this kind of stuff? Or maybe they were doing it, but they were definitely also into the foreign imports, into separate dining rooms and frescoes and Lots Ugh. of decorations, which the other gay, the, um, yeah, super gay, which the Amharats were not into at that time. Right. In fact, there's here's an interesting thing. This kind of blew my brain. I don't know what it means, but okay, minus two hundred. You have oil lamps, you know, made out of clay. They kind of look mm-hmm. like teapots, you know. Yeah, they look like the lamp from Aladdin. First century BCE, minus one hundred ish. Suddenly this new type of oil lamp comes around that instead of being decorative, usually you take the pot, you put a mold on top and it makes Mm -hmm. a little design. It's real pretty and nice. Suddenly they all become really austere, really like clean. Oh, brutalism. Centuries too early. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. They're all just like little skyscrapers (laughs) with smokestacks coming out the top. It's not like making it without designs was cheaper. It's actually like Mm -hmm. it was easy to just take the mold print and just like shove it on top but for some reason in the jewish areas around that time they stopped being into it they just stopped being into those designs perhaps foreign designs and then right after the destruction of the second temple the jewish oil lamps start having designs again right afterwards said you know god destroy the temple because our oil lamps were too fucking boring yeah that's why it happened Wake up, sheeple. That's really interesting. So we got our austere lamps, right? Mm-hmm. We got our stone dishes instead of the right. imports. And we have... The pottery barns. We have the pottery barns. Is there some pinnacle archaeological detail you're leading me up to with this list? Uh, no. Uh, oh. I have one final thing what to share. Down. I have one final thing to share. So another thing mm-hmm. is different pottery types. And the professor kind of categorized the cooking pottery into three different types. You got the cooking pots, which are vessels with very small openings that don't allow a lot of water to evaporate off. So they're good for cooking soups. Okay. Then you have like a stew pot or a casserole, which is like bigger sides. Right. For a kugel. Yeah, for your kugel. And then you have pants, like for a frittata, you know? (laughs) Yeah. She actually used the word frittata in the paper to describe it. Why? <laughs> I thought that was all you. So historically, these pans correlated with different regions. Mm-hmm. The Greeks, they loved the stew pots and the casseroles. The Levant, the Eastern whatever, they were really into your soup pots. And the Romans, they loved a frittata pan. Right. If it's not from Rome, it's just a sparkling quiche. Following the same pattern... All the rich Jews had the pans. They loved the pans. Which is the frittata one. Yes. So they would import the pans. They would have locally made pans and made in the style of these like these Italianate styled pans. They were Mm -hmm. all about it. They were all about it. And in these rural Jewish areas... Mm-hmm. very rarely you would find a pan. Right. They only had the big ass. They had the ones with the little openings, right? I guess they were more into the little openings. 
The Jews. The Jews were more into little openings. The rich Jews okay. were into the big openings, and the Gentiles and were the into the big openings. Gentiles were into the Frittatas. Apparently, in like the Qumran caves and stuff, they didn't find like a single pan in there. You know, it's a hundred percent pan free, pan free lifestyle, and proud of it. Yeah, you know, one hundred years since last pan incident on the work site. Here's a quote: "It is difficult to say precisely what ethnic valence casseroles carried for Jerusalem's Jews <laughs> when they finally begin using the form two generations later." Beautiful. The ethnic valence of casseroles. Yeah, that's. Let's change our podcast name right now. <laughs> let's change our whole topic to be about casseroles. Yeah, I think we should. Anyway, that's what I brought for today. I think that's honestly for today. one of your greatest. Oh, thank you. The main takeaway was there's some sort of religious interest among the Amhaarits that forms in the generations preceding the destruction of the Second Temple. Right. Amhaarits are doing it for themselves. It seems like the rich people were also doing some of this stuff, but they were also very assimilation-y. Right. They committed the sin of mixed cookware. Yes, exactly. Only thing worse than mixed dancing. <laughs> and so I don't know. Uh, I, I think that's interesting that... There's a growing divide between classes in terms of aesthetics and maybe mm -hmm. priorities that's happening up until the moment of the destruction of the Second Temple. Yeah, this really makes me think about, I mean, Talmud spends so much time talking about like, okay, how does, for instance, how does a soup pot become impure? Well, what if it's the, you know, the Roman style of soup pot? What if it's the Galilean style of soup pot? What if it's a soup pot made out of stone? What if it's a soup pot that's Galilean and made out of stone? Makes me think in a whole new way about like the developing pottery trends of the time and how that must have influenced the texts to be like, okay, people are, people are, you know, they got to buy the new iPod 10 every generation when it comes out. So we got to keep updating the Mishnah to keep up with the new cookware. Yeah. I guess so. I like the idea of like a Jew being like, yeah, that Jew over there, they think they're better than everyone else because they have a fucking pan. They have Fuck a fucking, they cook fucking frittatas Fuck like a bitch. Imported pan. No, we're better <sighs> than that. Yeah, we import bisexuals only. I don't know what prescription I can give to listeners about how to incorporate this into their Jewish lifestyle. <laughs> no, it's already incorporated. Our cookware know, is as mixed as can be. Austere oil lamps. Well, austere oil lamps might have been the problem. So bedazzle your oil lamps. No, I got to say, when I saw pictures in this paper, I like the austere one. It's like... Well, that, you would. No, it's that clean, like, almost like modern-y, like, it was very beautiful. And, like, it was way Maximalism, too tacky. No, it was so, so tacky. So tacky. You're tacky. Don't test me on this. Okay, okay. Anyway, this was a delight, Michael, and I'm sure our listeners will agree. Dear listeners, I hope you enjoyed this. Theoretically, right before this, we released a patron episode. So if you're, you're not a patron already, you could become one and you could go back and listen to our most recent patron episode, which is um, some secret spicy texts about parentage that I'm preparing and a whole backlog of patron episodes at patreon.com. Hi, how are you? But regardless, we're so delighted that you joined us in this pottery barn of our lives. And without further ado, Shavuotov. Shavuotov.